Section twenty four of Volume One E of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of sixteen eighty eight. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adam Pico. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of sixteen eighty eight by David Hume. Volume One E, Section Twenty Four, Chapter Fifty Five, Part Three. To make the attack on royal authority by regular approaches, it was thought proper to frame a general remonstrance of the state of the nation, and accordingly the committee, which at the first meeting of Parliament had been chosen for that purpose, and which had hitherto made no progress in their work, received fresh injunctions to finish that undertaking. The committee brought into the House that remonstrance which has become so memorable, and which was soon afterwards attended with such important consequences. It was not addressed to the King, but was openly declared to be an appeal to the people. The harshness of the matter was equalled by the severity of the language. It consists of many gross falsehoods, intermingled with some evident truths. Malignant insinuations are joined to open invectives, loud complaints of the past accompanied with jealous prognostications of the future. Whatever unfortunate, whatever invidious, whatever suspicious measure had been embraced by the king from the commencement of his reign is insisted on and aggravated with merciless rhetoric. The unsuccessful expeditions to Cadiz and the Isle of Rhe are mentioned the sending of ships to France for the suppression of the Huguenots, the forced loans, the illegal confinement of men for not obeying illegal commands, the violent dissolution of four parliaments, the arbitrary government which always succeeded, the questioning, fining, and imprisoning of members for their conduct in the House, the levying of taxes without consent of the commons, the introducing of superstitious innovations into the church without authority of law. In short, everything which, either with or without reason, had given offence during the course of fifteen years, from the accession of the king to the calling of the present parliament. And though all these grievances had been already addressed, and even laws enacted for future security against their return, the praise of these advantages was ascribed not to the king but to the Parliament, who had extorted his consent to such salutary statutes. Their own merits, too, they asserted towards the King, were no less eminent than towards the people. Though they had seized his whole revenue, rendered it totally precarious, and made even their temporary supplies to be paid to their own commissioners, who were independent of him, they pretended that they had liberally supported him in his necessities. By an insult still more egregious, the very giving of money to the Scots for levying war against their sovereign, they represented as an instance of their duty towards him. And all their grievances, they said, which amounted to no less than a total subversion of the Constitution, proceeded entirely from the formed combination of a popish faction, who had ever swayed the king's councils, who had endeavoured, by an uninterrupted effort to introduce their superstition into England and Scotland, and who had now at last excited an open and bloody rebellion in Ireland. 
This remonstrance, so full of acrimony and violence, was a plain signal for some further attacks intended on royal prerogative, and a declaration that the concessions already made, however important, were not to be regarded as satisfactory. What pretensions would be advanced, how unprecedented, how unlimited, were easily imagined, and nothing less was foreseen, whatever ancient names might be preserved, than the abolition, almost total, of the monarchical government of England. The opposition, therefore, which the remonstrance met with in the House of Commons, was great. For above fourteen hours the debate was warmly managed, and from the weariness of the King's party, which probably consisted chiefly of the elderly people and men of cool spirits, the vote was at last carried by a small majority of eleven. Some time after, the remonstrance was ordered to be printed and published, without being carried up to the House of Peers for their assent and concurrence. When this remonstrance was dispersed, it excited everywhere the same violent controversy which attended it when introduced into the House of Commons. This Parliament, said the partisans of that assembly, have at length profited by the fatal example of their predecessors, and are resolved that the fabric which they have generously undertaken to wear for the protection of liberty shall not be left to future ages insecure and imperfect. At the time when the petition of right, that requisite vindication of a violated constitution, was extorted from the unwilling prince, who but imagined that liberty was at last secured, and that the laws would thenceforth maintain themselves in opposition to arbitrary authority? But what was the event? A right was indeed acquired to the people, or rather their ancient right was more exactly defined. But as the power of invading it still remained in the prince, no sooner did an opportunity offer than he totally disregarded all laws and preceding engagements, and made his will and pleasure the sole rule of government. Those lofty ideas of monarchical authority, which he has derived from his early education, which are united in his mind with the irresistible illusions of self-love, which are corroborated by his mistaken principles of religion, it is in vain to hope that in his more advanced age he will sincerely renounce from any subsequent reflection or experience. Such conversions, if ever they happen, are extremely rare, but to expect that they will be derived from necessity, from the jealousy and resentment of antagonists, from blame, from reproach, from opposition, must be the result of the fondest and most blind credulity. These violences, however necessary, are sure to irritate a prince against limitations so cruelly imposed upon him, and each concession which he is constrained to make is regarded as a temporary tribute paid to faction and sedition, and is secretly attended with a resolution of seizing every favourable opportunity to retract it. Nor should we imagine that opportunities of that kind will not offer in the course of human affairs. Governments, especially those of a mixed kind, are in continual fluctuation. The humours of the people change perpetually from one extreme to another, and no resolution can be more wise, as well as more just, than that of employing the present advantages against the king, who had formerly pushed 
much less tempting ones to the utmost extremities against his people and his parliament. It is to be feared that if the religious rage which has seized the multitude be allowed to evaporate, they will quickly return to the ancient ecclesiastical establishment, and with it embrace those principles of slavery which it inculcates with such zeal on its submissive proselytes. Those patriots who are now the public idols may then become the objects of general detestation, and equal shouts of joy attend their ignominious execution with those which second their present advantages and triumphs nor ought the apprehension of such an event to be regarded in them as a selfish consideration. In their safety is involved the security of the laws. The patrons of the Constitution cannot suffer without a fatal blow to the Constitution, and it is but justice in the public to protect, at any hazard, those who have so generously exposed themselves to the utmost hazard for the public interest. What, though monarchy, the ancient government of England, be impaired during these contests in many of its former prerogatives, the laws will flourish the more by its decay, and it is happy, allowing that matters are really carried beyond the bounds of moderation, that the current at least runs towards liberty, and that the error is on that side which is safest for the general interests of mankind and society. The best arguments of the royalists against a further attack on the prerogative were founded more on opposite ideas which they had formed of the past events of this reign than on opposite principles of government. Some invasions, they said, and those too of moment, had undoubtedly been made on national privileges. But were we to look for the cause of these violences, we should never find it to consist in the wanton tyranny and injustice of the prince not even in his ambition, or immoderate appetite for authority. The hostilities with Spain, in which the king on his accession found himself engaged, however imprudent and unnecessary, had proceeded from the advice, and even importunity of the Parliament, who deserted him immediately after they had embarked him in those warlike measures. A young prince, jealous of honour, was naturally afraid of being foiled in his first enterprise, and had not as yet attained such maturity of counsel as to perceive that his greatest honour lay in preserving the laws inviolate, and gaining the full confidence of his people. The rigour of the subsequent parliaments had been extreme with regard to many articles, particularly tonnage and poundage, and had reduced the king to an absolute necessity if he would preserve entire the royal prerogative of levying those duties by his own authority and of breaking through the forms in order to maintain the spirit of the constitution having once made so perilous a step he was naturally induced to continue and to consult the public interest by imposing ship money and other moderate though irregular burdens and taxations a sure proof that he had formed no system for enslaving his people, is that the chief object of his government has been to raise a naval, not a military force. A project useful, honourable, nay, indispensably requisite, and, in spite of his great necessities, brought almost to a happy conclusion.
It is now full time to free him from all these necessities, and to apply cordials and lenatives, after those severities which have already had their full course against him. Never was sovereign blessed with more moderation of temper, with more justice, more humanity, more honour, or a more gentle disposition. What pity that such a prince should so long have been harassed with rigours, suspicions, calumnies, complaints, encroachments, and been forced from that path in which the rectitude of his principles would have inclined him to have constantly trod. If some few instances are found of violations made on the petition of right, which he himself had granted, there is an easier and more natural way for preventing the return of like inconveniences than by a total abolition of royal authority. Let the revenue be settled, suitably to the ancient dignity and splendour of the crown. Let the public necessities be fully supplied. Let the remaining articles of prerogative be left untouched, and the king, as he has already lost the power, will lay aside the will of invading the constitution. From what quarter can jealousies now arise? What further security can be desired or expected? The king's preceding concessions, so far from being insufficient for public security, have rather erred on the other extreme, and by depriving him of all power of self-defence are the real cause why the commons are emboldened to raise pretensions hitherto unheard of in the kingdom, and to subvert the whole system of the constitution. But would they be content with moderate advantages? Is it not evident that, besides other important concessions, the present Parliament may be continued till the government be accustomed to the new track, and every part be restored to full harmony and concord? By the Triennial Act, a perpetual succession of parliaments is established, as everlasting guardians to the laws, while the king possesses no independent power or military force by which he can be supported in his invasion of them. No danger remains but what is inseparable from all free constitutions, and what forms the very essence of their freedom. The danger of a change in the people's disposition, and of general disgust, contracted against popular privileges to prevent such an evil, no expedient is more proper than to contain ourselves within the bounds of moderation, and to consider that all extremes naturally and infallibly beget each other, in the same manner as the past usurpations of the crown, however excusable on account of the necessity or provocations whence they arose, have excited an immeasurable appetite for liberty. Let us beware, lest our encroachments, by introducing anarchy, make the people seek shelter under the peaceable and despotic rule of a monarch. Authority, as well as liberty, is requisite to government, and is even requisite to the support of liberty itself, by maintaining the laws which can alone regulate and protect it. What madness, while everything is so happily settled under ancient forms and institutions, now more exactly poised and adjusted to try the hazardous experiment of a new constitution, and renounce the mature wisdom of our ancestors for the crude whimsies of turbulent innovators. Besides, 
the certain and inconceivable mischiefs of civil war, are not the perils apparent which the delicate frame of liberty must inevitably sustain amidst the furious shock of arms? Whichever side prevails, she can scarcely hope to remain inviolate, and may suffer no less or rather greater injuries from the boundless pretensions of forces engaged in her cause than from the invasion of enraged troops enlisted on the side of monarchy. The king, upon his return from Scotland, was received in London with the shouts and acclamations of the people, and with every demonstration of regard and affection. Sir Richard Gournay, Lord Mayor, a man of moderation and authority, had promoted these favourable dispositions, and had engaged the populace, who so lately insulted the king, and who so soon after made furious war upon him, to give him these marks of their dutiful attachment. But all the pleasure which Charles reaped from this joyous reception was soon damped by the remonstrance of the commons, which was presented him, together with a petition of a like strain. The bad counsels which he followed are there complained of, his concurrence in the Irish rebellion plainly insinuated, the scheme laid for the introduction of popery and superstition invade against, and, as a remedy for all these evils, he is desired to entrust every office and command to persons in whom his Parliament should have cause to confide. By this phrase, which is so often repeated in all the memorials and addresses of that time, the Commons meant themselves and their adherents. As soon as the remonstrance of the Commons was published, the King dispersed an answer to it. In this contest he lay under great disadvantages. Not only the ears of the people were extremely prejudiced against him, the best topics upon which he could justify, at least apologise for his former conduct, were such as it was not safe or prudent for him at this time to employ. So high was the national idolatry towards parliaments, that to blame the past conduct of these assemblies would have been very ill-received by the generality of the people. So loud were the complaints against regal usurpations, that had the king asserted the prerogative of supplying, by his own authority, the deficiencies in government arising from the obstinacy of the commons, he would have increased the clamours with which the whole nation already resounded. Charles, therefore, contented himself with observing in general that even during that period so much complained of, the people enjoyed a great measure of happiness, not only comparatively in respect of their neighbours, but even in respect of those times which were justly accounted the most fortunate. He made warm protestations of sincerity in the reformed religion. He promised indulgence to tender consciences with regard to the ceremonies of the church. He mentioned his great concessions to national liberty. He blamed the infamous libels everywhere dispersed against his person and the national religion. He complained of the general reproaches thrown out in the remonstrance with regard to ill counsels, though he had protected no minister from parliamentary justice, retained no unpopular servant, and conferred offices on no one who enjoyed not a high character and estimation in the public. Quote, if, notwithstanding this, he adds, any malignant party shall take heart and be willing to sacrifice the peace and happiness of their country to their own sinister ends and ambition, under whatever pretense of religion and conscience, 
if they shall endeavour to lessen my reputation and interest, and to weaken my lawful power and authority, if they shall attempt by discountenancing the present laws to loosen the bands of government, that all disorder and confusion may break in upon us, I doubt not but God in his good time will discover them to me, and that the wisdom and courage of my high court of parliament will join with me in their suppression and punishment. End quote. Nothing shows more evidently the hard situation in which Charles was placed than to observe that he was obliged to confine himself within the limits of civility towards subjects who had transgressed all bounds of regard and even of good manners in the treatment of their sovereign. The first instance of those parliamentary encroachments which Charles was now to look for was the bill for pressing soldiers to the service of Ireland. This bill quickly passed the lower house. In the preamble, the king's power of pressing, a power exercised during all former times, was declared illegal and contrary to the liberty of the subject. By a necessary consequence, the prerogative which the crown had ever assumed of obliging men to accept of any branch of public service was abolished and annihilated. A prerogative, it must be owned, not very compatible with a limited monarchy. In order to elude this law, the king offered to raise 10,000 volunteers for the Irish service, but the commons were afraid lest such an army should be too much at his devotion. Charles, still unwilling to submit to so considerable a diminution of his power, came to the House of Peers and offered to pass the law without the preamble, by which means, he said, that ill-timed question with regard to the prerogative would for the present be avoided and the pretensions of each party be left entire. Both houses took fire at this measure, which, from a similar instance, while the bill of attainder against Strafford was independence, Charles might foresee would be received with resentment. The Lords, as well as Commons, passed a vote declaring it to be a high breach of privilege for the King to take notice of any bill which was in agitation in either of the houses, or to express his sentiments with regard to it before it be presented to him for his assent in a parliamentary manner. The king was obliged to compose all matters by an apology. The first instance of those parliamentary encroachments which Charles was now to look for was the bill for pressing soldiers to the service of Ireland. This bill quickly passed the lower house. In the preamble, the king's power of pressing, a power exercised during all former times, was declared illegal and contrary to the liberty of the subject. By a necessary consequence, the prerogative, which the Crown had ever assumed, of obliging men to accept of any branch of public service, was abolished and annihilated, a prerogative, it must be owned, not very compatible with a limited monarchy. In order to elude this law, the King offered to raise ten thousand volunteers for the Irish service, but the Commons were afraid lest such an army should be too much at his devotion. Charles, still unwilling to submit to so considerable a diminution of power, came to the House of Peers and offered to pass the law without the preamble, by which means, he said, that ill-timed question with regard to the prerogative would for the present be avoided, and the pretensions of each party be left entire. Both houses took fire at this measure, which, from a similar instance, while the bill of attainder against Strafford was in dependence, Charles might foresee would be received with resentment. 
the lords as well as commons passed a vote declaring it to be a high breach of privilege for the king to take notice of any bill which was in agitation in either of the houses or to express his sentiments with regard to it before it be presented to him for his assent in a parliamentary manner the king was obliged to compose all matters by an apology the general question we may observe with regard to privileges of parliament has always been and still continues one of the greatest mysteries in the english constitution and in some respects notwithstanding the accurate genius of that government these privileges are at present as undetermined as were formerly the prerogatives of the crown such privileges as are founded on long precedent cannot be controverted but though it was certain that former kings had not in any instance taken notice of bills lying before the houses which yet appears to have been very common it follows not merely from their never exerting such a power that they had renounced it or never were possessed of it such privileges also as are essential to all free assemblies which deliberate they may be allowed to assume whatever precedents may prevail but though the king's interposition by an offer or advice does in some degree overawe or restrain liberty it may be doubted whether it imposes such evident violence as to entitle the parliament without any other authority or concession to claim the privilege of excluding it but this was the favourable time for extending privileges and had none more exorbitant or unreasonable been challenged few bad consequences had followed the establishment of this rule it is certain contributes to the order and regularity as well as freedom of parliamentary proceedings the interposition of peers in the election of commoners was likewise about this time declared a breach of privilege and continues ever since to be condemned by votes of the commons and universally practised throughout the nation End of section 24, chapter 55, part 3. Recording by Adam Pico.